Mark chapter 9. When I read the Gospels, I, I wonder why God gave us the specific stories that he gave us. I, wait, I don't mean why do we need those stories. I don't mean that. I'm looking for what God is showing, him, showing me. You understand Jesus' ministry lasted for over three years. But if you took the events of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, many, many of those events are in all three Gospels, and you just assigned one day per event, you've only got, at the most, a few months' worth of activity. Out of three years, I think it's even much less than that because many of the accounts in the Gospels, three or four or five of them happened in one day. John said... When he finished his gospel, if everything that Jesus did was put in a book, he said, I suppose the whole world would not be able to contain the books. So, the little sampling that we're given here in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, why did God choose those specific events? And what does God want me to know? And that's the question I'm asking as I look at the stories The answer boils down to this, or one of the answers is this. God wants to show us how he interacts with man. You know, if we can find out how God interacts with man, we have a very special treasure. If you can find out what that woman had that fought her way through the crowd to touch the hem of Jesus, if you can figure out what she had that Jesus answered, you've got a great treasure. If you can figure out what caused blind Bartimaeus as he sat by the roadside and he heard a crowd coming and he started asking, what's what's coming down the road? Oh, there's a great crowd. Yeah, but but something's going on. What's happening? Oh, it's it's that healer from, from Nazareth. And he starts to shout, Jesus, that son of David, have mercy on me. And he just keeps shouting and keeps shouting. And ultimately, Jesus stops in his track while other people were trying to silence him. Jesus stops in his tracks and looks over and says, bring that man over here. And the crowd hushes and Bartimaeus comes over and Jesus heals him. And for the first time in his life, Bartimaeus can see. If if we can figure out what Bartimaeus had that caused him to connect with Jesus, we've got a great treasure. And so... Each of these stories in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John tells us about some people and what they had that caused them to connect and to put God to work. It tells us how to get God involved in transforming our lives. These stories tell us How to get God to fix something in our life that's broken. These events in the Gospels, they tell us what we need to do to get God to step in and go to work. I don't know about you, I need God to step in and go to work. I need Him to do that all day, every day. I don't need to be the pilot of of my plane Ever. 
You know, you see those, that slogan, God is my co-pilot. I'm not against that, but, but uh, really, I need God to be my pilot. How many of you today, you say, yeah, I need God to step into my life and, and do something. Okay, we're, we're going to look at a, one of the most famous quotes in the Gospels that doesn't come from Jesus. And we're going to look at a man that, to be honest with you, in the beginning of the story, he was like most people. But by the end of the story, something switched. And he tapped the source and caused Jesus to go to work. Here's what we're going to find as we look at this story. That what kept Jesus from going to work was not Jesus. It was the man. And Jesus told him so. So stay with me as we walk through this story. I love, I love the whole picture here. Jesus had taken his three most devoted disciples, Peter, James, and John. And he'd take them up on a, on a high mountain. Understand, this is not a 15-minute walk. This is, this is an all-day event, pretty much. And they climb this mountain. Jesus takes them to the top, and because Peter, James, and John clung a little bit more closely, or maybe a lot more closely to Jesus than the other disciples did, Jesus said, I'm going to show you guys the big picture. Each of them had already concluded that this is the Son of God. And Jesus said, all right, you've taken that step of faith to believe that I am the Messiah, to believe that I am God in the flesh. Let me show you a little more. Listen, God wants to show all of us a little more. But we've got to be hungry for him like Peter, James, and John were. We've got to have faith like Peter, James, and John had. I'll never be, you know, they go up on top of that Mount of Transfiguration And Jesus' appearance has changed before them. All of a sudden, they're watching, and it's just the man they know there, Jesus, the man they know, love, and respect. And as they watch, all of a sudden, they watch as he is transformed into his image as king of kings. I believe as they're watching that they're seeing, if not the same image, a very similar image to what the apostle John will see on the Isle of Patmos in Revelation chapter 1. And if you go there and read the description, each of us, our jaw would drop if we were to see what John saw in Revelation 1. And they watch as their friend and their leader, Jesus, transforms into the king of the universe. What is he doing there? He is showing them something that is bigger than their lives. He is showing them something that is bigger than this world. He is showing them the eternal plan of God. While he's there, Moses comes in. Elijah comes in. And they have some meeting of significance regarding Jesus' crucifixion. There's some great transaction that takes place relating to God's plan of redemption on top of that mountain. By this time, Peter, James, and John are flat on their faces in fear. Listen, I'll never be a Moses. I'll never be an Elijah. I'll never be a Peter or James or a John. 
But I want to stay as close as I can. And if by any chance I want to be in that crowd to whom God shows the big picture of what he's doing. God's doing something that is so much bigger than this world. So much bigger than politics or uh, the first Sunday of the NFL or, 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 or the entertainment culture. So much bigger than what bogs us down every day. God's doing something that is on an eternal plane. And he wants to show you that. But look, you've got to bring some dedication to the table. You've got to bring some devotion to the table. God doesn't show his secrets and his mysteries to people who are just casually going through life and, hey, if God ever wants to show me something, I'm here. No, you've, you have to be somewhat sold out for God to say, let me, let me bring you up into the mountain and show you what's really going on here. So that's where Jesus had been. Meanwhile, the other nine disciples are down there on the bottom of the mountain. After this great scene is over, Jesus is walking down the mountain. Peter, James, and John are with You can imagine, they're full of questions. Tell us what that was all about. What does the Bible mean when it says this? And, what? and Jesus is answering their questions. He says, by the way, what you just saw, don't talk about it until after I'm risen. What's that about? There's more questions there. What is he talking about? They come down to the bottom of the mountain. By the way, when you are on the mountaintop, whether it's in your own private time with God or in a meeting like the Quad State Sunday School Conference yesterday or like the Northeast Summit, uh, you you go to the mountaintop, understand you always have to come back down to -to day-to-day life. And you encounter people with problems, and those people weren't on the mountaintop. Don't forget that. And they're counting on you to bring them what, what you saw. I'm talking about it's my job as a pastor, and it's every believer's responsibility to some extent to spend some time on the mountain and then come back down to the office and bring them some mountaintop love, joy, and peace. It's the job of every Christian to spend time on the mountain and then come back down to our Sunday school classes and bring them some, some mountaintop victory. That's what we're all supposed to be. Somebody say amen there. That's what we're all supposed to be doing. So Jesus and Peter and James and John come back down, and the first thing they see is a crowd of people. And in that crowd of people are the nine disciples who didn't go on the mountain, no fault of theirs. I mean, Jesus called Peter, James, and John, basically standing there going, you know, they're walking down the mountain looking over there, and there's... There, there's Matthew, and, and uh, uh, there's, there's Judas, and there's Thomas, and the whole nine of them basically standing there going. And if that wasn't bad enough, in that crowd is a group of the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders with their robes and so forth. I mean, it's like pulling, turning around, turning the corner to your house, and there's police cars in the driveway, and you're going, oh, great. What happened? And they come down the the, the mountain, and they look, and there's a crowd of people, and the nine disciples are with them, and there's the religious leader standing there. And, uh, boy, I imagine it just must have been, oh, great, what's going on here? Well, some people in this huge crowd of people turn, and they see Jesus walking down out of the mountain, and they all start running over towards him. Jesus approaches the crowd, 
He says, what's going on here? And a man steps out. The man says, uh, my son here, now he's an adult son. We know that because Jesus, when Jesus said, how long has this been going on? The man said, since he was a child. Okay, so he's not a child anymore. So he's at least a teenager. And in the, in the Bible, child very often refers to a teenager. He's probably a young adult. And he says, my, my son here has been possessed by a spirit for many years. And it controls his life. It thrashes him all over the place. And I brought him to your disciples to see if they could do anything. And they couldn't do anything. That's when Jesus spoke those words that we read, O faithless and perverse generation. And as I said, he was directing that to everybody there. Jesus said, "Bring, bring the young man over here. They bring him over here, and he just, under the influence of this unclean spirit, he is thrashed all over the place quite frankly, reminds me in the very first year, the, one of the, probably the worst summer of ever being a pastor was the first one, 1995. The summer of 95, I was working five jobs that summer. The main job, the 40-hour week job that I was working that summer was I was working for an ambulance company. And my job was to, to take people sometimes from their homes to their program or to take them from their homes to a doctor's appointment or to take them from a group home to a, a program or just, just drive. You, you see the ambulance, and I was driving an ambulance that summer. And uh, one young man in particular, I picked him up. It was, it was the uh, second run of the day. And I picked him up at his house over in Carmel, and I took him to a, a program over in Carmel. And I want to tell you something. I've never been so sure that I was in the presence of someone who was demon-possessed. Poor young man. He was an adult young man, and just his mother was terror-stricken. I was terror-stricken. I could tell you a story, make a hand, hair stand up about something that happened that summer, just unbelievable. And as I read this story, I think of that young man and others like him that I encountered, that, and others that I've encountered over the years before that point and since then. And this man brings his son to Jesus, and that spirit is just tearing him up. And the man says, if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, Jesus is amazing, and, and his wisdom is eternal, and I just pray that God gives me a measure of the wisdom because I want you to notice this man says, if thou canst do anything. What is Jesus' answer? If thou canst believe. Just as Jesus did, by the way, with Nicodemus, when Nicodemus said, except a man be sent of God, he can't do these things that you do. And Jesus said, except a man be born again, he can't go to heaven. Jesus took Nicodemus' own words, turned her right around, and, and I believe led him to the Lord there. And Jesus does the very same thing to this man. If thou canst help us, 
Jesus said, no, no, it's, it's not, the burden's not on me here. The burden's on you. Not if thou canst help us, sir, but if thou canst believe. Now, look at this man, and I'm not, I'm not trying to smack him around here. But first of all, I see a man who is a, a, a little bit of a whiner. Because he was, this man was okay. This is what I don't like about the fellow at the beginning of the story. He was okay with bringing the religious leaders, the, the biggest critics of Jesus, bringing them in and accusing Jesus and his disciples in the presence of the religious leaders. So this man had a little bit of a, of a wrong attitude himself. I see a man who's critical. I see a man who's a whiner. I see a man who is a blamer. I brought him to thy disciples and they couldn't do anything. Wait a second, sir. You've been his dad his whole life and you haven't been able to do anything. So don't come here after a, you know 30 minutes with the disciples and say this is all their fault. You've spent a lifetime being his dad and somewhere you weren't on your guard or this spirit would not have had access to your son. So don't come here and just start pointing fingers at the disciples. And then I see some sarcasm. If you can do anything... Now, now maybe they said, Pastor, I don't think that was a spirit. Maybe not, but i got to tell you, as I read it, that's what I'm picking up. Some whining, some blaming, some complaining. And a little bit of sarcasm there. But Jesus, he's kind, he overlooks it, he has mercy. And he takes the man's own statement... If thou canst do anything, and Jesus says, if thou canst believe. If thou canst believe. See, the dad was saying, the burden of responsibility is on you. Jesus said, no, the burden of responsibility here is is on you, sir. The dad says, "I'm, I'm waiting for you to act. Jesus. Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm waiting for you to act. The dad says, hey, you're holding up the works. You and your disciples, you're holding up the works here. And Jesus takes the man's own words and says, no, you're holding up the works. Now the man has a decision to make. By the way, let me stop and just, just say, check your own heart. Have you blamed God this week for holding up the works in your life? I don't know about you. I've got a long list of things that <laughs> God just, I don't know where he's at, but boy, when he, when he gets back in his office, I've got some stuff for him to do. I don't know what he's waiting on, but we all have that in our hearts, I think, to some extent. What, what in the world's God waiting for here? He knows, and it is something the man, he really... He, he, he accuses Jesus a little bit. If you can do anything, have compassion on us. You wouldn't think the Son of God is coming in with compassion? Are we really telling God to have some compassion for us that he doesn't already have? Do you, would you really accuse God? Would I really accuse God today of not having compassion on you? You know, God cared. 
If, if God really cared about me, this issue would be fixed. If thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, no. If thou canst believe. And what you see in this man is an immediate, in fact, Mark's word is straightway. That's one of the key words of the book of Mark, straightway. It means, it means right away. Straightway. An immediate change. When the man realized it's on me to believe. That's really what I want you to get this morning. I've got seven things that happen, and we're going to rattle through them quickly, but, but there's the message right there. If thou canst believe, the burden is on you and it's on me to believe God for our solutions. It's on us to believe God for our solutions. And so we need to move out of blame mode. And can I say this kindly first and foremost to me? If I'm blaming someone else, I'm really blaming God. Do you know why nothing is getting done in a certain area of my life? It's because Fred, he keeps messing it up. Well, when I say that, you know what I'm saying? I'm saying God's not strong enough to stop him from stopping me. One of the questions, if you, if you have ever sat in my office and said that, uh, you know, um, I, I would be doing better if it weren't for so-and-so. I don't, I, I don't ever deal with so-and-so if so-and-so's not there because... You can't change him or her. So I deal with you. And if you've sat in my office and we've had this conversation, here's what I've asked you. Do you think that so-and-so can stop you from getting to God's best? And you'd be surprised at how many times people answer with, yes, I do. You do? You think, let's use my friend Bob. You really think Bob can stop you from getting to God's best? Yes, I do. That is an accusation against God because you think that God can't stop Bob from stopping you. So all the blaming that I do and all the blaming that you do, we're really blaming God. We've got to come face to face with that. And we've got to take responsibility for the fact that if nothing is changing in my life, if the transformation that I need is not taking place, if there is no miracle, if there is no breakthrough, if I'm not seeing the change that I know that I need, it's not because God is standing idly by and, boy, if, he would just, if he'd wake up and have compassion, everything would change. We're saying to God, God, if you can do anything... Lord, you see my finances, if you can do anything. Lord, you see my marriage, if you can do anything. God, you see my kids, if you can do anything. God is saying to us, no, if you can believe. If you can believe, and don't forget that James says that faith without works is dead. So we're not just talking about a, a mental affirmation we're talking about a change of action based upon the fact that we have decided to believe that God can 
We have decided to believe that God will keep His Word. I wonder who's here this morning who will decide to believe that God will keep His Word. So let's look at these seven things, and they will go quickly. The seven things that change in this man, the moment he believed that God would keep His Word, first of all, the dad accepted the responsibility. You can see that change. You can see that he goes from thinking that the burden, it was the, it was the disciples' fault. And now it's Jesus' fault. If this doesn't get done, get done, it's going to be because of Jesus. And now he suddenly decides, no, this is on me. This is on me. The dad decides to take responsibility. And then the dad acts immediately. Listen, if you're going to decide to take responsibility... There's going to be some immediate action, some immediate change. One of the men who spoke yesterday in in, uh, the session where I was the moderator was Pastor Brian Wilson. He was talking about how to apply Bible truth to teenagers' lives. It's a Sunday school conference. How to apply Bible truth to teenagers' lives. And Pastor Wilson said this. He said, one of my jobs as a teen uh, worker is to help that uh, young man or young lady who comes down the aisle and says, hey, I want, to change, I want to change my music. My music is, is hindering me. My music is holding me back. And if he expresses that to me to say to him, hey, tell me how you listen to music. Well, I got my, I got my iPhone here. All right, what are you going to do with your iPhone? Well, uh, I don't know. I guess I need to delete some songs. Do you know how to delete songs? Let me, let me delete them for you. And let me, if you, if you let me have it for this afternoon... Let me fill it back up with good songs. And he says, you have to do it immediately. He said, you've got to get to that kid right away and say, are you serious about this decision? Then we've got to take action now. This father, when all of a sudden he realizes, the Son of God is telling me the burden's not on him, the burden's on me. All right, then I've got to take action right now. There's my son He is possessed of a demon, and I've got to take action right now. And he does. So he takes responsibility. He takes action immediately. The third thing that this dad does is he prayed with passion. Look back at uh, at the story in verse number Verse number 23, Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him, believe it. And straightway... The father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Now, wait a second. This is the same guy that a couple of minutes ago was standing there going, you know, I don't, I don't know what the deal is, what this scheme is about. I'm paraphrasing. But, I mean, do you hear that? And I brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't do anything. And now here you are. Okay, if, you, if you can do anything, could you please help us? And now all of a sudden, he's crying. I mean like that! He's in tears. Why? Because he has, he's gotten under conviction that it's my responsibility to believe God. And he cries. Listen, when you decide... To believe God for your change in your life. Whatever it is you need God to step in and do. You decide it. You know what? This is on me. I 
I need to get God's attention. I need to show God that I'm serious about this thing. It will affect you passionately. And if it doesn't affect you passionately, it hasn't gotten a hold of you yet. He prayed with passion. I want you to see the fourth thing that he did. Is that he wept at his own weakness. Once he realized that it was his duty to believe, he realized how incapable he was. I believe that that is the, the, some of the greatest tears that we'll ever shed. Is when we realize, I have to believe God for my loved one's salvation. I have to believe God for the, for the strengthening of my marriage. I have to believe God for him to show me his will. And once we realize it's it's our responsibility, the greatest thing that can happen next is for us to realize, I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't. I don't know how. You know, when you say, I don't know how to believe, you may not realize it, but that's one of the best things that happened in your heart. I don't know how to believe. Would you take that to God? God, I don't know how to believe. I hear pastor preaching on believe, and I don't know how. I don't know how. God, help me. I don't know how. Let me tell you, when you get there, you are in a great place. I don't know how to believe, God. God, I don't know how to believe you. And that's what this man said. Lord, I believe, and if I could paraphrase, I, I believe a little bit. I mean, I'm here, aren't I? But he cried out with tears, the fifth thing he did. He believed the best he knew how, but number six, he trusted Jesus to compensate for his weakness. You know what this is almost? It's very similar to when Jesus said to the rich young ruler, Oh, you want eternal life? Keep the whole law. Oh, I already did that. Oh, okay. Then go sell all that you have and follow me. Now, every one of us that knows the gospel knows that's not how you get to heaven. Why did Jesus say that? The same reason he said to this man, if you can believe, all things are possible because this man need to come to the place that he came to, which was, I can believe some, but I don't think I'm believing enough. And it crushed him when he realized that his son's future was lying in the balance, hanging in the balance, based upon his ability to believe. You know, it scares me to death whenever we're reminded, whether I'm doing the preaching or somebody else is, when we're reminded that the future of our country is in our hands. Because I think we're in bad shape then. Man, if the future of our country is depending on my faith, we're in trouble. And that's true. But you know what you need to do with that? You need to take it to God. Lord, we're in trouble. We're in trouble not because of this crowd and their actions and this crowd. We're not in trouble just, just because of the wickedness of the wicked. We're in trouble because you're counting on the righteousness of the church. And, Lord, we don't have much. 
Oh, God, we don't have much righteousness to offer. We're in trouble. God, help us, please. When you realize that everything depends on you, but you realize also that you're not up to the task, that is the essence of brokenness, and you're in a good spot then. As long as you take that brokenness to God. This man brings his brokenness to God, and he says, to Jesus, he says, Okay, I need to believe. If I can believe, great things can happen. And I can believe a little bit, but i got to tell you, I think I'm mostly unbelief. And he's weeping as he says it. And I can see the crowd just sort of, oh, that poor man. But what the crowd thinks doesn't really matter. What matters is that Jesus looks and says, that's it right there. I can see Jesus thinking maybe, boy, I wish that young ruler had, had done what you're just doing right there. That what, what you're demanding. Remember Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you can't get into heaven? What? Because that's what he was looking for right there. I can't give what you're asking because I don't have it. Can, can, you, can you step in and make up for my lack? And broken before God. Lord, I believe the best I know how, but you're going to even teach me how to believe. You know, Ephesians says, by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Even your faith doesn't come from you. It's all of God. It's all of God. I believe in the free will of man. I believe when the Bible says, whosoever will may come, that it means whosoever will may come. But I know this, too, that everyone who gets saved, it's all of God. Say, Pastor, I don't know how to reconcile those two. You don't need to know how. You just need to know God says both and leave it with him. Anybody that wants to can come. When you do, it's God that did it. Can't figure that out. We don't have to figure it out. We just have to know it and live it. And the seventh thing this man did is he left the result with God. Never forget this. I remember having this conversation with Tim. I've had it with a number of you. Sitting in with the windmill diner. I said, Tim, if you're serious in what you're telling me right now, your life's about to go from bad to worse. And it did. did you, you lost your job that week, didn't you? Was the accident after that or before that? It was right around then, after that. Shortly after that, I said, your life's about to go from bad to worse. If you really want God to step in, things are going to go from bad to worse. Hey, if you want that root canal fixed, you got to go to the dentist. Have you ever been to the dentist for a root canal? <laughs> Is there anything in this world? In fact, when I got my, when I got my, my uh, toes amputated five years ago next week, or two weeks from now, yeah, the last weekend of September, um, I was supposed to have a root canal that week. And when Brother Ray Young came, and I remember sitting in the hospital. I just had forgotten all about this. I said, Brother Ray, I was supposed to have a root canal today. I said, I'll tell you, some people go, through, go to any length and not have to have a root canal, won't they? <laughs> it's not fun. But you know what? Before you can get that pain to go away, you've got to go through some pain. 
You know what happens when this man says, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Jesus casts the demons out. The, the boy is thrashed all over the place worse than ever before. And then he's laying there dead. And there's no indication. In fact, we don't hear from the dad again. There's no indication that the dad said, Wait! I asked for help and you killed him! Nope. Evidently, because we don't hear a word from the dad, he just stands there. And the crowd's looking at the dead boy. And the Pharisees, the scribes, are looking at the dead boy. The disciples are looking at the dead. You hear Thomas go, I could have done that. <laughs> I could have killed him. And the dad stands there. And the boy gets up. And I see the Bible doesn't tell us, but you know the dad went over and gave him a hug and said, are you back? Are you back? Do I have my boy back? The man chose to leave the outcome with the Lord. I believe even if the boy had died, the dad would have been, all right, Jesus. Because you're, you're in control now. Something happened in the heart of that man. He went from a sarcastic, blaming, whining critic to a weeping man saying, Lord, I believe a little bit, but you're going to have to do the rest. And Jesus said, bang, we're there. Where are you? What is it, that, what is it that's just, just driving you pardon the expression, I just mean it as an expression, what is it that's driving you insane? You need to believe God, but the truth is, you don't have enough faith. None of us does. What God requires, you don't even have enough of it. So you need to go to God and say, God, I believe you enough to come to you in prayer, but that's about it. Because I don't know what to do the rest of the way. Oh, God, you've got to help me. You've got to help me. When that genuinely happens, you have turned a corner. You'll see God step in. You take the action he tells you to take. And you trust him with the outcome. And you'll see things change. Father, I